Let's pray. Father, forgive us that we have uh, worried so much that we forgot how to pray. And um, Lord, I pray that our knee-jerk reaction in our lives would be uh, to submit to you, to surrender to you, and um, wait for you to deliver us. Uh, So we repent of our self-sufficiency as we try to rescue ourselves. And uh, so I pray that now you... Uh, would throw us the line uh, as drowning people uh, and rescue us with your gospel. Uh, Do this, we pray. Amen. Uh, We're back to Judges. Um, We've been talking about family the last two weeks uh, here on Sundays. And in between those two weeks, we had our uh, conference about family. Uh, All that's on uh, the podcast. Love for you to uh, engage that material. Uh, it's on the Good the Bluegrass Conference podcast. That's where you'll find it. Um, so we're back to Judges. Judges uh, is the sixth, uh, seventh book in the Bible. And um, we've been in it since uh, about September. And um, if you've been with us, you know that there's been a cycle. Each one of these judges, there's the same four-step cycle. There's, um, uh, they are, they've rebelled against God. Uh, then God uh, re- sends retribution for their sin by sending a foreign oppressor uh, to wake them up uh, to the darkness in their, uh, in their spiritual lives. And then the third piece is that they repent. Uh, it's usually not very good repentance, but God takes it. That's the good news of the gospel. And, uh, and the last step is that he gives them rest. He gives them rest through a deliverer. And the deliverer we've been looking at, uh, two, the last two sermons on Judges, and then tonight, and then next week, so four sermons total is on Samson. Um, there is a movie out on Samson. I haven't seen it. Um, I think it's probably like uh, the Bible meets the movie 300. That's what it looks like to me. Um, uh, but tonight we're back looking at Samson. And uh, I don't know this. I, I should probably watch it before I say this. Uh, but I, if I had to guess, I, I, I bet you that the movie is more about his heroism uh, than it is about his folly. Uh, because deep down, all of us are all, have always been looking for heroes. Uh, when you're a child, uh, your heroes uh, could be Superman, Batman. Um, been lots of arguments had on the playground about who is the best superhero and why, who would win in a battle. And um, you've got Wonder Woman, you've got Disney princesses. My house is filled with Disney princesses. It's saturated with Disney princesses. It's on screens, it's on cups in my kitchen, it's on sheets in the bedroom. Everywhere I look, there's a Disney princess. Uh, And eventually, I think Eden and Audrey will wake up and see that Disney princesses aren't real, and they'll move on from them. But I think while we're children, while we love superheroes, while we love Disney princesses, we also uh, see our parents as heroes. You know, you've, you've probably maybe heard or been a part of the argument, my dad can beat up your dad. You've probably seen coffee cups and t-shirts say world's best mommy. Um, but eventually we find out that our parents are pretty lousy. And it's because all parents are lousy. Uh, my kids will find out that I'm lousy soon enough and I won't be their hero. But are heroes only for children? I don't think so. Uh, I think that's why we click on the bottom of websites about uh, Hollywood stars. Because in some ways there are heroes. We wouldn't say that, but it's true. Or sports figures. They captivate our imagination with their superior athletic prowess. 
But eventually we see their flaws too. I mean, you, I, mean I, I can make a much longer list than this, but you've got Michael Jackson, Mel Gibson, Whitney Houston, Bradley Cooper, Mary J. Blige, Stephen King. They've all struggled and they, they either all struggle now or did struggle at some point with substance abuse. Celebrities. Hear us? Uh, Ray Rice, he's a, uh, he was a Pro Bowl um, running back in the NFL just a few years ago. He was caught on tape hitting his girlfriend. Hero? Uh, Jerry Sandusky. Uh, he was defensive coordinator at a storied college football program at Penn State, and he sexually assaulted children. Hero? Those people are the kind of people you have come speak at your banquet. But then we find out that they're not heroes. But maybe you're like, well, you know, athletes and Hollywood, that's a little superficial for me. I'm more into the heroes of history. Well, great. Abraham Lincoln, severely depressed. Winston Churchill, he proved to be far less than a perfect politician after the war. Maybe for you it's a pastor. Oh, gosh, don't, don't, please don't choose us as heroes. Uh, we're too easy to pick on. Uh, and you don't have to look very far to find a pastor with a shoddy track record. So what should we do with heroes? Should we worship them? Uh, should we just worship them and when they let us down, just go find a new one? Or should we be into hero deconstruction? Hero deconstruction, you just are very skeptical of all admirable people. You just wait for their gaps to be exposed. See, the book of Judges is about leadership. It's about heroes in some regard. And a judge in the book of Judges is not a judicial official. It's not someone who wears a black robe and makes judicial judgments. A judge in the book of Judges is a leader who saves God's people. He or she is a deliverer. But the amazing thing about these quote-unquote heroes is how effective they are while also being total buffoons. In many ways, they're talented and they're very gifted but they're also very short on character. And today, what I want to look at is the gap between Samson's gifts on one side and his shortcomings on the other. And then draw some pastoral applications. Uh, so let's read our passage together um, and move on. I, I, there was just really no way for me to do anything but put, print the whole chapter this week. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the back and forth. I want you to see... Um, how Samson retaliates against the Philistines and how the Philistines retaliate against Samson. It just goes back and forth, back and forth. So follow that as we read. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Sounds great. Uh, is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. See how he retaliated right there? Verse 6, Then the Philistine says, Who's done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Tim Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her 
and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I'm going to quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. You saw he just retaliated, right? All right, verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, notice what they, I just want you to notice what they don't say, say to Samson. What they don't say to Samson is, hey, Samson, you're the strongest, meanest, baddest dude around here. Why don't you go fight the Philistines for us? It's not what he says. Look, look what he says. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is it that you have done to us? In other words, you have upset uh, the peace between us. And he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him from the rock. Now these are people from Judah. These are his own people who tied him up. Now they're bringing him before the Philistines. Verse 14, when he came to Lehi, and the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes were on his arms, became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put, on, put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, you could also say Samson sang, right here. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place so that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. The word of the Lord. All right, so Samson's gifts and his accomplishments, his achievements, his strengths. You'll see them, they were right there, weren't they? See, Samson, he gets more material. He gets four chapters, more than anybody else. And what the author's trying to do with those four chapters is show you just how gifted he is and also just how dumb he is. That's what he's trying to do. Back in chapter 14, the last time we were here, you saw that Samson killed a lion with his bare hands. You saw that at the end of chapter 14, he killed 30 men by himself. So he had extraordinary strength. Well, this strength keeps playing itself out in chapter 15. He's bound with these two new ropes. It says, remember, it said that they were as flax that were, that were uh, put to a flame. But he, he, he ripped through those two ropes that were on him like they were scotch tape. He also killed 1,000 people by himself with the jawbone of an ass. But you see this, the source of his power. Don't you look at verse 14. It's the spirit of the Lord. Back in chapter 14, 14 verse 6, it's the spirit of the Lord that helps him kill the lion. And in 14 verse 19, it's the spirit of the Lord that empowers him to kill those 30 men at Ashkelon. So his physical power finds its 
root in a spiritual source. See, the New Testament's teaching on the Spirit of the Lord aligns, not exactly, but aligns with the Old Testament in this regard, that both the Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament is about power. But the teaching changes a little bit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon individuals for specific purposes. The Spirit of the Lord only resided on Samson in these instances. In the in-between, the Spirit of the Lord wasn't empowering him. But in the New Testament... The Spirit abides with us, is with us continually, and isn't just on leaders, but is on all people. It's democratized. We see these gifts of the Spirit, these powerful things, uh, in passages like we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 12. You can read other lists in Ephesians 4 and Romans 12. And these are gifts. They're not rewards. You don't get these things after you've reached a certain level of spiritual maturity. No, 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 no. You are given these gifts at the time of your conversion. And they're gifts. And they have extraordinary power. And as I think back on my life and how God's used me, it's really been through the gifts of other people in my life. Uh, when I was growing up, God faithfully uh, gave me uh, youth leaders in my church and he gave me uh, family members who taught me some really specific important things. One was the importance of the Bible. I got that from them. Another was the importance of uh, loving people outside the church. I got that from them. They taught me the importance of the church. I got that. I got that growing up in my youth, in my, my, in my, uh, in my younger years. Then I got to college. God put different people in my life. All those people were in Florence. Now I'm in Lexington. I'm at the University of Kentucky. And God gives me a couple friends. And he gives me a mentor who teach me new things. They teach me and they tutor me in the doctrines of grace. They tutor me in communion with God. Things I didn't learn growing up. I'm indebted to those people. Then I get to seminary and I had uh, two mentors, two professors, who really taught me, not just in their lectures, but in their lives, about the Holy Spirit. See, all these mentors, they impacted me, and they impacted me with the gifts that God gave them. But as time went on, their flaws were exposed. A couple of these people have abandoned me. A couple of these people struggle severely with sexual addiction. A couple of these people have chosen the ministry over their families and have lost their families. See, they have their deficits, but those deficits, they don't nullify the reality of their gifts. And the same is true for Samson. His power was extraordinary. He really did do the work of the Lord that was set out for him. He was effective. And he was effective because the gifts God gave him. But he clearly has his deficits. Let's look at those. So he's got this spiritual strength, but you see how he uses it, don't you? He uses it for vengeance. He does so both in chapters 14 and in 15. In chapter 14, his anger was prompted by, uh, his anger is what prompted him to slay the 30. Then in chapter 15, what we read earlier, uh, we get verses 4 to 6. Um, he gets real mad when, when he, you know, he comes back. At the end of chapter 14, if you remember, uh, things go awry at his bachelor party. Uh, at, 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 and, and, and what happens is he, his father-in-law gives um, Samson's wife to his, um, to his best man, <laughs> who was a Philistine. Samson didn't know that. And Samson comes back here, and he gets real fired up, but he doesn't kill his wife and his father-in-law. He instead kills some of their people, or not kills their people. What he does is he sets those foxes on fire and, sets them in, and, and, and makes them go broke. 
be like lighting their bank account on fire. That's what it was like when he, when he lit the wheat and the olive trees on fire. That was all because of what the father-in-law did. But you know who got mad about that it was the Philistines. So the Philistines, they come back and say, who, who did that? And they said, Samson. So you know what they did. They killed his wife and his father-in-law. Samson gets mad, so Samson retaliates, and he kills the thousand. He kills the people who killed his um, who killed his family members, and then later he kills a thousand more people. So all this is vengeance. This is very different. His engagement with the Philistines is very different from the other judges with their foreign oppressors. With the other foreign oppressors, they the other judges they engage the foreign oppressors as the, as the emissaries of God. Samson does it for personal vengeance. So he uses his real strength that God has really given him for his own purposes. Not only is he vengeful, you also see his pride. I pointed out that what he said there in verse 17, verse at the, um, in verse 16, is really a song. And notice, there's nothing about the Lord there. <laughs> He's just talking about, hey, I'm a bad man. See all these thousand corpses I'm, I'm standing on? See this jawbone of an ass that I'm holding here in my hand? I'm a bad man. He's prideful. But that's the only place we see his pride. You see it again in, his, in what he calls um, the place where he's revived. So you know, he kills those thousand people, and, and clearly he's thirsty. He thinks he's going to die. And I think, I think he wasn't exaggerating. I think that's a real thing. You try to kill a thousand people, even the Spirit of the Lord, you'll be tired too. But he calls the place where God makes water come from a rock. He calls it, you see it there in verse 19, in Hakor. Now, if you had your real Bible and probably not your, um, uh, your app, um, you would see a little footnote. And in Hakor, translated, is this. Here, let me find it here. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, here it is. Here's what it means. It means the spring of him who called the spring of him who called. You see his self-centeredness there. He thinks the reason that he was revived was because he was so smart as to pray. That's where he is at a heart level. He thinks he really has his spiritual life figured out. So the question for me and you isn't if you pray. The question is how you pray. And you know you have a spiritual deficit when God answers your prayer and then you take credit for it. That's what Samson did. And the New Testament can account for how it's possible to have a, a, have a great impact on the world for God while your character lags woefully behind. And it's the difference between spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit. See, spiritual gifts, they're given to us, like I said earlier, at the time of our conversion. And they have, they have extraordinary power and they're used to build up Christ's church. Spiritual gifts are about doing, and they're about impact. But the spirit, fruit of the Spirit, they're character qualities. They're things that every Christian should exhibit in their life. And they're about being, not doing. And they're cultivated over a lifetime of abiding with Christ. They're non-negotiable. You don't get to say, hey, I'm a loving person and I'm a self-control person, but I don't do patience. And I don't do joy. You can't say, I'm about goodness, but faithfulness, mm, I'm good with being flaky. No, 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 no. That is not our option with the fruit of the Spirit. 
They're non-negotiable. No matter how public or how impressive your gifts are. See, Samson was long on gifting and short on character. And what Paul says right after his teaching that we read earlier on 1 Corinthians 12, at the beginning of chapter 13, is that it doesn't matter how gifted you are. Our gifts cannot make up for a lack of spiritual fruit. Nor can gifts replace our need to produce spiritual fruit. So can God use you even if your heart's in the wrong place? Absolutely. That's what the story of Samson tells us. In fact, our heart's never going to be in the right place this side of heaven. And that's why we need someone whose heart was in the right place. We need that person to lead us. We need someone whose reign lasted so much longer than Samson's 20 years. We need someone whose character exceeds their gifting. And that person is Jesus. See, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jesus just like it did Samson, and it empowered him not to kill a thousand people with the jawbone of an ass. Jesus didn't use his power to exact revenge on those who wronged him. In fact, the people who killed Jesus were the same people 50 days later at Pentecost, Pentecost who were filled with his spirit and became the church. See, Jesus didn't allow the supernatural power that he was given to heal the blind, to forgive sins, to raise the dead, to miraculously feed 5,000 to get to his head. Rather, he maintained this posture of humility before his father. He prayed prayers that were conditional, like my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. Think about that. This is the son of God, the member of the Holy Trinity. And even he is not presuming that God's going to answer his prayers. Where Samson demands that God answers his prayers. In fact, Jesus' prayer in the end goes unanswered. He's asking not to go to the cross because he dreads being separated from the Father. The sin of the world is laid on him. And Jesus dies the death of a sinner, though he's not one. Jesus dies the death of a sinner, though he's innocent. And the sin that he died with was yours, friend. The sin he died with was mine. And it was the Father's plan to execute his Son so that you and I might live. See, our sin became his sin, and his righteousness becomes ours. See, Samson used his power for his own benefit, and he exacted revenge on his enemies. Yet Jesus laid down his power for our benefit, even though we are his enemies. And friends, when this rings true in your inner being, you will be just as, if not more impressed by the fruit of the Spirit than you are the gifts of the Spirit. Or to put it in the negative, you will begin to see that your biggest problem is not your lack of accomplishments, but your lack of virtue. Let's go back to my opening illustration. If you read this story and you say, hey, let's be like Samson, that's pretty scary, isn't it? Partly because of his sexual ethic. He just jumped in and out of bed with women. 
But messaging like be like Samson is like telling God, use me because I'm so gifted. That's what that is. And that's hero worship. That's idolatry. That's worshiping yourself. But on the flip side, if you say, hey, God, use me, even though I jump in and out of bed with women, even though I'm vengeful, even though the only thing that matters to me are my desires. After all, who's perfect? Then that's hero deconstruction. What you and I need to do is pray a different prayer. We need to pray the prayer of this. I lack virtue and I cling to Jesus, the virtual one. And I'm asking you, King Jesus, to work in me to make me virtuous. That's the prayer God's looking for from you and from me. And that's Christianity. So practical question. How do you go about using your gifts wisely? How do we seek to let character remain a higher priority than our impact? Well, the first thing I think is God-centered community. Uh, Samson, if you notice all four chapters, he's very isolated. I mean, he's around people, but he's only around people uh, to, to, to exact his vengeance on them or to use them. He didn't have anyone who had any character around him who could say things like, hey, you might want to rename the place where God gave you water. Bad idea. Naming it the spring of him who called. He didn't have anybody around him say, hey, bro, God's called you to deliver his people from the Philistines. But the best way to do it is not seeking revenge when you've been personally hurt. Samson needed people and we need people around us who confront us because they love us. So let me give you an example. Think about venting. I think we see uh, the psalmist, they vent to God. And I think if you're in a loving, grace-based community, it can be a healthy thing to vent to others. But if we really want to be suspicious of ourselves, we will tell the person we're venting to and say, hey, if you hear me do any complaining, call me out. If you hear me do any slandering when I'm about ready to vent, will you please tell me? Tell them before you get rolling. If you hear anything that sounds off, anything that's self-centered, please, please, please tell me. Take one, you've got to make a big decision. Go to your people of character and your God-centered, grace-based community and put out all your options about the decision you've got to make. And don't ask them this question. Do not ask them, what should I do? Bad question. Here's a much better question. Where do you hear pride as I lay these out? Where are my motivations about my glory rather than God's? See, Samson needed these people in his life, and so do you. Another thing I think we can do to prioritize our character over our impact is with God-centered prayer. See, Samson was his own worst enemy. The most powerful person to Samson was himself. <laughs> and he needed a reorientation that he wasn't the most important person, but that God is. And he needs to do that through prayer. Think about it. God gave us a prayer. Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, and, keep, and he keeps going. 
he gives us. Why does he give us that prayer? Because he knows that we're really bad at praying from the hip. When we pray at the hip, we pray things like, uh, Lord, uh, I need you to give me a drink. And then I'm going to name this place a spring of him who prayed. That's what we do when we pray from the hip. But when we use the Lord's Prayer, it reorients us that God is at the center. See, at the very beginning, it says, uh, hallowed be your name, not build my reputation and brand. You're praying for his kingdom to come. To be, you long for it to be built, not for your own kingdom. You see in the prayer for daily bread that he is your provider and it's not your hard work. You realize when you ask him to forgive you of your debts that you really do have debts against God instead of him having debts against you that he should repay. You see that you need to let him judge your enemies so that you can forgive them. You see how this displaces you, don't it? Don't you see how it displaces your agenda, it displaces your gifts, it displaces your impact? But what does this really look like? Well, back uh, when I was in college, um, I've told many of you this, but I coached at uh, Tate's Creek High School, and uh, the coach was a Christian, and, and uh, he, he would say, you know, uh, he called me Pastor Marshall, and I was just a college kid. And uh, he said, Pastor Marshall, will you pray the Lord's Prayer for us while we run out there? And I said, be glad to, Coach. I'd say, all right, boys, our Father, and then they could, you know, they knew it. Is that what it looks like for you when you roll out of bed? You just roll out of bed, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. No, 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 no. I, I think there's a different way, a, more, a much better way to do it. Take, take your whole life. Take your, take your situations, take your desires, take your prayers, and begin to slot them under the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. And then you'll be reoriented to God's agenda for your life instead of using prayer to get God on your agenda. Friends, what do you long for more? Impact or for spiritual fruit in your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you've given us uh, someone so much better than a hero, someone just to look up to. Uh, but Lord, you've given us a savior, someone who's delivered us. Um, Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for that good news. Uh, Lord, may it warm our hearts and uh, cause us to pray prayers uh, that says we are not virtuous. We cling to you, the virtuous one, and we ask that you would make us virtuous. Do this for your glory, we ask. Amen.